one, I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman-Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I Relaunch, and your host. Today, we welcome Amy Impelizzeri. After spending 13 years as a corporate litigator in New York City, Amy left to write and advocate for working women and eventually women entrepreneurs as VP of Community and Designer Relations for ShopFunder LLC. After her first novel, Lemongrass Hope, which debuted in October 2014 as an Amazon bestseller, Amy became a full-time writer. She has just released her fifth novel, and her books have great titles like Secrets of Worry Dolls or Why We Lie. And we're going to talk about book titles and book writing shortly. Amy also has a nonfiction book published by the American Bar Association called Lawyer Interrupted, which is a how-to guide for leaving the practice of law, something she says about half of all lawyers want to do. And Amy is the past president of the Women's Fiction Writers Association and a proud member of the Tall Poppy Writers, which we will talk about. Amy is a frequent speaker across the country and a faculty member of the Drexel University MFA program in creative writing. She lives in Reading, Pennsylvania. Amy, welcome to 321i Relaunch. Carol, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you, and I know that you and I were just reminiscing right before we started recording about when we first met, and I'm I, I'm just remembering uh, that it was very early in your career path. You were a lawyer, you were at Skadden, yeah. and we. I remember, I don't know if you had just gone on your career break or you were thinking about it, but... I was you new. My yeah, I was newly on my career break. So it was 2009, uh. and Scadden's answer to the Lehman Brothers collapse was not to lay off lawyers, but to actually open up a program called Sidebar Plus. And lawyers were allowed to apply for a one year subsidized sabbatical. We had to set out sort of our plan for the year. And at first, I wasn't granted the sabbatical because I was a litigator and litigators were, you know, litigation is impervious to economic downturns. So the litigators mm-hmm. were very busy, but I mm-hmm. did convince the head of my department that I really wanted the year. And so I did ultimately start the career break in 2009. Uh, it was, you know, just supposed to be a one year. I often say I'm still on my one year sabbatical 10 years later, but ah. one of, I was doing freelance writing. That was one of the the things I was doing. And so I actually came to my first I relaunched conference as a journalist and co- to cover ah. the conference for local media. And I was absolutely mesmerized and riveted and have always, have always talked about that conference. Actually, when I've talked to transitioning professional professionals, including lawyers about the impact it had on me coming so early in my own career break, because I was very, I was listening very intently to people talking about various career breaks and breaks on their resume and gaps on their resume. And, um, so I was very conscious from, from the get go that I was going to make sure that it was a very intentional time with, um, as little of a gap on my, you know, future resume as I could achieve. So that was a really pivotal time and meeting you was really really impactful. And we've, we've of course stayed in touch ever since. And I've been so grateful for that. 
Well, uh, same with me. And thank you for, for reviewing that because I, I remember when you wrote Lawyer Interrupted and I, I, I remember just being in touch in all these different phases of, of your career path. So maybe can you um, start by just jumping back in time and walking us through uh, the career path, including your career break uh, until where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I had at first a very traditional lawyer trajectory. I went to a liberal arts college uh, in Pennsylvania, Dickinson College. I majored in English and philosophy. I was always going to go to law school. That was always my goal from the moment I set, you know, set foot in my undergrad studies. I went directly to law school. I went to George Washington Law School in DC. I mm -hmm. applied for a federal clerkship and and obtained it. So I clerked in DC at the Court of Federal Claims for two years. And then I got my first job in the New York area with a boutique law firm. Basically, I started my career at a smaller boutique law firm. We were doing insurance defense and also um, we were national counsel for Amtrak. And mm -hmm. I was, I, I loved it. It was actually a really interesting law firm. They only hired law clerks because you, from the first day you set foot in the, the firm, you were immediately given a docket of trial work. And I had decided during my clerkship that for sure litigation was for me. And so I loved the idea of the firm. And um, at the time, I really didn't see myself on a path to big law. I, I really wanted to be in court and I wanted to have um, hands-on litigation work. And so it was really a fabulous step for me. But eventually working in New York, late 1990s, um, and there was a lot, you know, a lot of my friends were working for big law firms. They were making a lot of money. They were having a lot of success. And I got sort of wooed by Skadden. I had a lot of trial experience in my, in my three years, my early years of practice. And it was a very exciting offer when Skadden made the offer. But I do remember going into my, the partner's office at my old law firm and telling him that I had accepted this offer at Skadden. And he said to me, I don't think that's for you. And I thought that was just, you know, really, um, I just thought it was really unreasonable at the time. I thought, how can you say that? It's Skadden. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity on paper. It's sort of everything I've, you know, in theory, I've worked for all my life. I was always going to be a lawyer. It's Skadden is the, you know, upper echelon of law firms in terms of prestige and salary and career opportunities. But, you know, he said to me, you are meant to be a trial lawyer and you're going to have a different, it's going to look different there. And mm -hmm. he wasn't wrong. And I, I did go to Skadden and I did end up staying there for a decade, which kind of shocked me at the time when I, when I realized, you know, as I was taking my career break after a decade, and it still shocks me now. And I don't know how much longer I would have stayed, but I was starting to really think about what my next path on the journey was going to be when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the memo mm. arrived in my inbox, um, you know, advertising for Sidebar Plus. And I have to say, it was a moment where I felt the universe was really, really speaking directly to me. Yeah, boy, I remember that time vividly. Yeah. All right. So you, you elect to go to Sidebar Plus. Yeah. And then what, how long were you on career break for? Yeah. So, and the funny thing was, I just knew that I needed to catch my breath and think about the next steps in the journey. I didn't have a clear path. I didn't have a clear idea of what it was going to look like. 
I did know that I was going to take one year to really figure it out. So I was very intentional and I had always, you know, been a creative writer, but I had, I had boxed those dreams up in college because I was going to law school and I was on a straight line path. So Mm -hmm. I, I did when I went on sidebar plus reconnect with my writing, my creative writing, but I still was sort of doing that on the side. Professionally, I was working for a startup company and I was doing basically freelance work for them. I was also doing freelance journalism work for local media and advocacy work for a local nonprofit. And I was, I was truly filling that year as full as I could with intentional, you know, very deliberate decisions. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of had this idea that at the end of the year, I would sort of see what rose to the top. And that's what happened. So by the end of the year, what had risen to the top was the work with the startup company, which was Hybrid Her and then later became Shop Funder. It was a uh, basically a company that was working to market women entrepreneurs. And I was getting, they were venture capital funded. They had their own lawyers. They did not need a lawyer. But what they did need was a translator to work between the creative team and the legal team. Because the creative team would always say, we're always asking for things. And the lawyers they're constantly saying no. And I would say, well, that's because you're asking for this. Right. I used to always say, you know, you, you, you're asking for the wrong thing. Here's what we're going to ask for. And I, it was the first time I realized that my law degree actually qualified me to do something other than practice law. And it was very Mm. exciting. It was a very, that was a very exciting time. And And so at the end of the year, I decided to stay on with the startup company, I did end up negotiating for myself a full-time position with them later on. But I asked Skadden to convert my sabbatical into a three-year leave of absence. And then Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I'll extend this time where I sort of see what what really is going to be the next path. And all along, I was writing what became a novel. It was a story. It started as a story idea that was probably not surprisingly about a woman who was at a crossroads in her life and sort of evaluating every single decision she had ever made up until then. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. autobiographical strictly, but of course it was inspired by what was going on in my life at the time. And I was working on that on the side and I was working at the startup company and um, I was meeting really incredible, creative, interesting people who were forging new paths in their lives. I also was making connections in the publishing industry because the head of the company had run a magazine. So she was a New York City uh, magazine editor. And so I would say to her occasionally, you know, I'm working on this book. And she'd say, you know, if you ever finish it, I'd be happy to look at it and and help you make uh, connections. And so Mm -hmm. it was a really great you know, it was sort of something that was out there that I kind of was incentivized to keep working on the book. And every time I picked the book back up again, I'd put it away for weeks or months. And I think, is there really something here? And when I'd pick it up again, I would think, yeah, I think there is. And so ultimately it wasn't until 2013, four years after I started my sabbatical that I did start to pursue the path of publication. And ultimately, mm-hmm. well, actually, let me back up for a minute. Because of the work I was doing the journalism report and the journalism work and the reporting work, like covering I Relaunch, I was getting published and I was um, doing magazine articles and I was doing newspaper articles and I was sort of discovered by an agent who was thinking about pitching a book to the American Bar Association. So while I'm working on my fiction man- manuscript, I was actually in a coffee shop and I got a call from this agent and she said, you know, I've been reading some of your work and I've been reading about what you're doing during Sidebar Plus and I really want to pitch this book called Lawyer Interrupted to the American Bar Association. 
And I think you would be the person to write it. And I, I said to her, well, I'm sitting here with this fiction manuscript that I'm trying to shop, <laughs> but you've just <laughs> described the book that I should definitely be writing right now. <laughs> so I said to her, she said, would you work on the pitch with me? And I said, yeah, I will. Because really, if we're going to get the American Bar Association on board, what we really have to be talking about is something I have now discovered, which is that the JD is much more versatile than anybody who is practicing law understands. Mm. And so that's how we, we crafted the pitch. And that's ultimately what the, what the Bar Association greenlighted. So that was actually my first book contract was the lawyer interrupted contract. And then I used that to shop my fiction contract. And, and I actually sold my first book without an agent, without a literary agent. I got a literary agent afterwards, but that is a little unorthodox. But it was kind of interesting how it sort of worked out and was, you know, an extension of my my legal background, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting comment because when Vivian Steer Raven and I were uh, in the early stages of writing back on the career track, yes. we originally had interest from a publisher before we had an agent. We didn't know anything about the business and we had very strong interest from one publisher. And then we and then we talked to a few friends of ours who had published nonfiction. And they said, you guys should get an agent and chop this around a little bit. And we were like, oh, okay. And so we talked to our friends' agents and like two out of the three wanted to represent us. And we picked one when, and then we thought, well, we must have something here if we already have a publisher and two out of three agents want, want to represent us. So that was our learning curve. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, we could have easily gone in without an agent on um, with the first deal. So right. interesting that you did that. And and we can talk about that in in a little bit. This the the process and uh, a nonfiction versus fiction book, book proposal for nonfiction versus finished product for fiction, um, uh, and the role of the agent and whether you recommend one or not. So can can you just fast forward a little bit? And once you uh, got Lemongrass Hope published, I guess directly with this publisher without an agent. Did things just like spiral after that? And did you get like a multi-book contract or did, did was each one published by someone different or how did that work? Yeah. So all of my fiction books thus far have been published by Wyatt McKenzie. And so what happened was Lemongrass Hope, I sold Lemongrass Hope to Wyatt McKenzie. Uh, that was a connection that I did ultimately make through the magazine editor, mentor, friend of mine. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was really exciting. And it was funny because actually the, the head of Wyatt McKenzie said to me, you know, debut fiction, it's hard to sell. It's easier to sell nonfiction, but we're going to sort of see if we can bootstrap it on the publicity and marketing of Lawyer Interrupted and, and see what happens. And I had made some friends because I was really serious about having a, you know, having a career, a potential career in publishing. I had networked and made friends in the industry with some professional writers, some really commercially successful writers who had given me, who had been incredibly generous with their advice and who made, you know, sort of helped me understand the industry a little bit. And so when the book was, uh, you know, due to come out, one of the, one of the activities you have to do basically, and everyone has to do this, no matter how famous of a writer you are. And obviously I was debuting and nobody knew me, but you have to sort of knock on doors and ask writers to blurb your book and endorse your book, mm. read your book. And then if they like it, endorse your book. And I really spent a lot of time doing that. And I ended up connecting with 
it was just one of those things that when you, you know, make generous friends and they start introducing you to people. And I ultimately connected with Jacqueline Machard, who was Oprah's first book club pick author. Um, she was the, be- the best-selling author of Deep End of the Ocean. And I was, I had worked on my novel manuscript with a really amazing, generous writer, Caroline Levitt, who's also a New York Times bestselling author. She'd helped me. She'd been my developmental editor. Basically, I'd hired her to help me um, get the book ready for submission to an editor. And because she was so uh, well-known in the industry and also because she had been so generous and and positive about the manuscript and was certain that it really was truly, you know, a commercial manuscript. Um, Jacqueline Machar was willing to look at the, the manuscript and she wow. did and she blurbed it. And that was a huge break for me because Library Journal uh, picked up her endorsement and, you know, I just, I got some recognition that was really coveted and exciting for a debut author. So because of that, I was able to, you know, get a literary agent and was able to um, really start thinking about the next book and the, the possible commercial potentials, you know, for, for subsequent books. The second book, Secrets of Worry Dolls, I did sell as a multi-book deal because by this point I had an agent. He was shopping Secrets of Worry Dolls around to some bigger publishers, bigger than Wyatt McKenzie, and no one was reading it. It was basically ending up on desks and, and sitting there. And mm-hmm. so I said to him, well, we should probably, you know, th- this book is going to just languish. And it also had a very specific timeline that I was worried about expiring. At some point, the book was not going to be relevant anymore. It was a post 9-11 mm-hmm. book and just because I of see. the timeline of the story. So we went back to Wyatt McKenzie and basically they were really interested in the book and they wanted to do a two book deal. I had a third book, but not a full manuscript. I just had basically an idea for a third book. So White McKenzie said, if you'll pull it from the other big publishing, you know, houses that are just sitting on it, we'll buy two, we'll buy the next two. Mm. So that was really exciting to me because it was really important to me to have some longevity in this industry. So I sold Secrets of Worry Dolls and then The Truth About Thea as a two book deal. Wow. So exciting. Yeah, awesome. it was really exciting. And then did the same thing for the next two books. So the next two books were Why We Lie, and I know how this ends. And when they were ready, I said to my agent, well, when Why We Lie was ready and the pitch for the, the next book, I know how this ends, was ready. I said to my agent, take it only to Why McKenzie, give them an exclusive, see if they'll do the mm-hmm. same thing. And mm-hmm. um, they did. So yeah, so all my all my fiction books have been with Wyatt McKenzie, and actually very exciting. Um, the follow up to Lawyer Interrupted is going to be How to Leave the Law. Lawyer Interrupted was published in 2015, and mm-hmm. Liz Brown, who's been really um, important and impactful in this space, who wrote the foreword for Lawyer Interrupted and wrote Life After Law. She and I pitched a um, basically an updated. So much has changed in the transitioning law space since we wrote our books in 2014 and 2015 that we really wanted to write a follow-up. So we're actually, we signed a contract with White McKenzie just before the pandemic and we are going to be writing. We are writing. We're going to be finishing. <laughs> we're going to be finishing uh-huh. <laughs> um, a book called How to Leave the Law, which is going to come out in 2022. So I've had uh-huh. a really, really wonderful career at White McKenzie. I've been really, really happy with 
the interesting sort of way that I was introduced to them and then how my career has sort of um, really been very, very steady with them. It's very, been very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to give a shout out to Liz Brown. We, we have interviewed her on, on a, the three, two, one, I relaunch podcast, mostly about um, her relaunch and becoming a tenured professor on, uh, after a career break, which is very unusual. Yes. And of course she also wrote life after loss. So the idea that the two of you have teamed up to write this book, is doubly exciting and uh, thrilled to hear about that. Thank you for you and me both. Yes, and and Amy, actually, this leads me to one of my other questions, which I'm always intrigued by this with people who are writers and especially um, have a succession of books. Yeah. Well, there are two questions. I want to get to the creative process in a minute, but one is, can you like, can you make a living writing? And like, you talked about it as a side gig. And then it's at some point you were kind of doing this more full time. Like, like where does the, where do the finances fit into all of this? Yeah. I love this question because I often, uh, and I, and I will just back up for a minute. So I stayed with the startup company for until about 2014, 2015 at the point where I had two book contracts and I had to finish you know, the book that we had sold on proposal, I did leave the startup company and I did start uh, writing full time. um, But I'm going to talk about sort of what that really means in a minute. So basically the the short answer is because people are constantly will come up to me at legal conferences, CLE conferences, writing conferences and say, I love your story. It's so amazing. I want to quit my day job and write. How do I do that? And I Mm -hmm. always tell them, please do not do that. Um, Mm -hmm. because I did not quit my day job to write. And the reality is that just the math alone, it is very, very difficult to make a living strictly selling books. However, it is possible to make a living as a writer. And the way you do that and the way I have done that is to subsidize the writing in other ways. And so you have to just look, literally, if you just look at the math of selling books, the, the nature of the price point of the product, the nature of how many books you have to sell. I mean, a book is, you know, can be anywhere from $14.95 to $19.99 or, you know, some hardcover books are $28, but most publishers, you know, don't even really release hardcovers anymore unless it's a very established, well-known author. Um, mm-hmm. You will receive a very, you know, especially if you have a publisher and an agent, you will receive a very small portion of that price per book. And, um, even if you hear a story of someone and these are rare, but they do happen. If you hear a story of someone getting a six figure advance on their book, um, what that really means is, you know, uh, $100,000 or $200,000 across the span of maybe two or three years, because that's how long it takes to get a book from offer to market at mm-hmm. least two years. And you're, you'll pay taxes on that. Your agent will take a cut of that. You will most likely have to hire a publicist out of that money um, to you know, guarantee the success of the book. And then even if all of those good things happen to you, and even if your book hits the New York Times bestseller list, most of the books on the New York Times bestseller list in any given week, unless you're J.K. Rowling or, 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 or another big James Patterson, <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. you, you can conceivably hit the New York Times bestseller list depending on the week or the what's going on in the market, or even there's been a lot of discussion that the New York Times bestseller list has some popularity algorithms built into it. 
you may have sold 15, 20,000 copies of your book. That's a reach. So when you just look at the math alone, you start to understand how hard it really is to actually make a viable financial living strictly selling books. However, and all of the writers I know from self-published writers who have a little more control over the finances, by the way, and who do get a bigger, Mm -hmm. obviously, cut of their book, but have to make a bigger financial investment up front, all the way Mm -hmm. to my friends who are New York Times bestselling authors. We all subsidize the writing with other work, whether it's teaching work. So I'm on the faculty at Drexel. I also um, often taught uh, writing classes and run writing programs. I do also do nonprofit work. I do write grant writing and and other um, kind of fun work on the side to help subsidize the writing and also because it just sort of makes sense for me and, and helps. I really like to work on the side of writing because it actually inspires the writing. Not everybody mm-hmm. feels that way. Um, but also when you write nonfiction, there, you can leverage that to speaking and educating and CLE classes. For me, those when I was doing the Lawyer Interrupted Circuit, it was much more lucrative to do speaking engagements um, than it was to actually sell books, although you would often, you know, kind of leverage the interplay of the selling of the books with the speaking engagements. Right. So all of that is to say, I always tell people, please don't quit your day job and start writing a book and think that that's going to somehow, um, you know, unless you are independently wealthy, uh, that don't think that that's going to replace your income, but you can invest in the, you know, the writing career, just as if it's a startup company, just as if you're starting a new business, come up with a business plan, decide how much you're going to invest in the next, uh, you know, however many years you can tolerate. And, think about how you're going to um, subsidize it with with your current day job or some other different day job. There's two schools of thought. One is you do something, you know, on the side that is completely unrelated to writing. That's maybe, you know, kind of traditional corporate. So you can get, you know, your 401k and your benefits package and it's, it's, it's you know, steady and secure. And then you write on the side in, in a compartmentalized a world, or you do something a little more like I do, which is it's sort of synthesized. You're writing, your your brain is sort of stimulated in both areas of your world, and you're able to not. It won't make or break you if your book has to be out on submission for a couple of more months, or if you know um, you need a deadline, you need an extension for your deadline. That's okay because you have another way to subsidize the the writing work. So. Does that answer your question? (laughs) Yeah. And thank you so much for laying out the reality. Yeah. Nobody ever um, wants to talk about it. And I find that so frustrating. Yeah. And I will say you had mentioned the tall copywriters. So I found pretty early on in my journey, my writing journey, this group of women founded by Ann Garvin. She's a USA Today bestselling author. And we are a marketing co-op. It's a business, but we are also friends. And it's a very generous group of women and the group has evolved somewhat over the years. I've been involved with them since 2015 and we, we market each other. We also do a lot of brand sponsorship negotiations. We were involved with Francis Ford Coppola winery and book sense and different companies to, you know, basically help market each other and market our, our books as a brand. 
But they have been very generous. And from the start, they were very generous. I often joked that if there had only been tall poppy lawyers, I might have stayed in the law longer. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but there weren't. But the tall poppy writers have been very generous and open and transparent. It was the first time I really kind of met writers who were willing to be transparent and open about the industry itself, which um, tends to be shrouded in so much mystery and yes. confusion. And there are reasons for that. It is a confusing industry. <laughs> But it doesn't have to be so secret. And I'm always worried when a new, you know, author, emerging author or a debut author, I have a conversation with them that makes me understand that they're so confused and perhaps a little unrealistic about the finances of this industry. Because I think you make, if you don't know the realities, you make poor decisions. And I hate to see an emerging or debut author do that. Yeah, well, I am so grateful to you for um, talking about this in real terms. Our listeners have heard me talk before about romanticizing entrepreneurship. And as you're pointing out, uh, you know, the income stream, from, it, it is very much like starting your own business. And Absolutely. I'm glad you equated it um, in that way. Um, and also the income stream is equally unpredictable and lumpy and sometimes non-existent for a period of time. So it's a longer game. And the idea of having one of these portfolio careers with the different aspects of it that are related to your writing or having a, uh, doing it as a side gig and having a primary career that it has nothing to do with your writing. Very, very practical. And I hope everyone's um, listening to that piece of it. Can we talk just a little bit more about the economics? You mentioned an agent, uh, like an agent versus no agent. You mentioned hiring a developmental editor or a publicist. Do Sometimes does the publisher do some of these functions for you? And do you overall, do you recommend an agent or are there certain times when you would not? Yeah. So the initial starting out in the industry, I think you don't even know what you don't know. And that is a time to sort of decide, you know, how much you're going to invest to learn about the industry. So I think before you have, before you are published is a great time to invest in a developmental editor, which is what I did. Um, to understand sort of how to transform a manuscript into something you might give out at holiday time <laughs> to your family to something that's yeah. actually going to be a commercial product, right? So um, I did invest in a developmental editor before I was published. And actually, Caroline Levitt and I worked together on our first, my first several books because um, I really found it a very valuable experience. And then eventually I felt like I sort of graduated from her, which was a really exciting time. So I did invest in a developmental editor early on and PR. I did hire a publicist for my first novel. And usually, depending on who your publisher is, you will have some in-house publicity. And as time has gone by, um, that's been really helpful. And the bigger the publisher, obviously the bigger publishing, I'm sorry, the bigger the publisher, the bigger the marketing budget. Although the nature of the industry. Yes and no. Yes, I know. And yeah. I was just going to give that caveat. The nature of the industry yeah. is such that I have friends at very big publishing houses who have gotten zero marketing budget. And that is why exactly. sometimes even with a large advance, you are expected to use some of that advance on your own publicity. And so that is that is very difficult. Um, yes. And so, yeah, I, you know, I do. It depends what you want from your publishing career. 
I very much want longevity and I also want breadth. So I would like to sell subsidiary rights. I've sold audio rights and, um, and I would like to, I've had a lot of foreign press offers, but I haven't sold a foreign rights, um, deal yet. So, but that is all things that my agent, I'm actually now on my second agent in the industry and, uh, and love her and I'm thrilled. And she actually is a former SCAD attorney. Um, so so, you know, if I very much would like, I get a lot of film rights inquiries. I get a lot of foreign rights inquiries. Those are things that I think require specialized expertise in negotiating. They're not, you know, I feel like, I feel like, yes, I can negotiate probably my own book deals and obviously have. I feel like there are other very specific aspects of the industry itself that I don't know. And again, I'm always willing to admit that I don't know what I don't know. And so because I want other things than just a book deal, I, for me, it's important to have an agent who can explore and negotiate those things. Yes. But that's not the case for everybody. That's not the case for everybody. And so you have to make a decision because obviously that's, you know, you're paying your agent a percentage of your already not humongous profits, right? So you have to really think about how many pieces you're going to cut the pie into. And again, for me, I've just made the cost benefit analysis that I want I want longevity in my career and I want different, you know, I want different things. So I want, I think my, I want specialized expertise. Well, this conversation, I'm, I have three more questions I want to ask you and not very much time left, but I'm (laughs) going to just kind of put them out there and let's see if if we can tackle them. So I, I was interested in your creative process. You know, you have produced just a steady stream of books and, and do you like, are you super disciplined and you make yourself sit down and write every day? Do you suddenly get struck with an idea and then you intensely like sort of map it out? Um, How does that work? Yeah. So the lawyer in me definitely translates well to writing discipline, but I, I, my process has evolved along the way for sure. It was much more schizophrenic in the early days in terms of the story and letting the story evolve and then doing the work on the back end, you know, working with Caroline Levitt and kind of harnessing the story into something that was more organized and structurally appropriate. I've learned so much now that I spend more time on the front end now outlining the story. I am not, like some of my friends, a person who writes such a detailed outline that the book is already written before I even sit down to write it, because I do love Mm. the process of writing. So I do love the story to evolve, and I do love that process of finding the story as I'm writing. But I do spend much more time on the front end now of um, outlining the story, pulling apart the story into uh, basically like a 16 point um, and then eventually 32 point kind of structure that will allow me to write the story. It evolves, it change, changes. I can, I can basically write a story. I can basically write a book in about six to nine months on that, that timeline. So that, that's sort of where I am. That's sort of where my process is. Yes. I do try to write a little bit every day. And sometimes that is, you know, that means a few words. Sometimes that means a lot of words, most of which are bad. And and then when I am really in the story, then I will sort of shift to a much more disciplined, um, you know, usually I do word counts per week. So usually I will do like, okay, I have to write 5,000 words a week 
for a certain amount of time till I hit my deadline. Mm. Wow. That's discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the titles, do you, does the title sort of, do you start with the title? Does this title sort of fall out later? Does the publisher tell you what the title is? How does that happen? Yeah. Usually for my own books, I have named all my books and I've named them early on in the process and gotten really attached to the titles. And I am really lucky that those titles have stuck and my publisher was on board with all of them. That is not always the case. And some, and I have friends who will say, I'm terrible at titles. I give it, you know, just a placeholder title. And then we brainstorm. I've had a lot of friends who we've actually done like a, like a, you know, hive brainstorming for potential titles to submit to the publisher. So (laughs) usually the publisher will always have the end um, decision on a title just like the publisher will always have the end decision on covers, book covers. People ask me about that a lot too. And yeah. you will usually have some varying degree of input on both. And you'll have to understand that at the end of the day, it, it definitely is the publisher's decision. Yeah. You know, the original title for Back on the Career Track that we had suggested was From Play-Doh to Real Doe. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and we were loving it so much that they let us name the first chapter that. Um, oh, but that's, that's so great. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, and I, I remember working for hours on, on sort of like setting up one of those Play-Doh extrusion machines with yeah. like green Play-Doh and trying to make like a dollar sign come out. It took me hours. It never worked. Oh, that's <laughs> so great. I love it. I remember doing that at home with my kids. It was super fun. Um, all right. So loving this, Amy. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. I want to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And, you know, I have said this to, to many people in various transitioning paths, and I think the best advice I can I can give is to say it out loud, which is something I did all along my journey. Uh, when I had these sort of ideas that I wanted to pursue or, you know, the idea that I was going to be a lawyer, the idea, even the idea that I was going to turn the startup gig into a full-time gig, I would start to say it out loud. And when you do that, you'll be surprised. Um, first of all, just not in terms of the own acknowledgement and validation for yourself, but you'll also be surprised about the audiences it might land on. And, um, you know, I have had a lot of opportunities because I said it out loud in front of the right person or the right group um, who was able to offer assistance, advice, guidance, um, warnings. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I think um, I think that would be my answer for that. Yeah. Yeah, that is great advice. And you so you sort of see how it feels. How do you feel when you're talking about it? Correct. And that gives you a lot of clues. And I, I, I love that. So yeah, thank you. Um, Amy, how can people find out more about your work and where can they order your books? Yeah, so please go to my website, which is my name, www.amyempelizzeri.com, which is I-M-P-E-L-L-I-Z-Z-E-R-I.com. And um, you can order my books from uh, your local indie bookstore, from Barnes and Noble, from Amazon, from bookshop.org. Um, and you can also sign up for my newsletter on my website, which is totally spam free. And I'll let you know when there are sales and deals. And we're going to be actually 
doing an encore of my virtual book club that was a big hit during the pandemic. We're going to be revisiting that in 2021. So sign up for my newsletter and I would love to keep in touch with your listeners. Oh, that that sounds, that book club revival, that sounds really fun. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Carol, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss strategies, advice, and success stories about returning to work after a career break. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the chair and co-founder of I Relaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us.